Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 228. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And I got a feeling this episode is going to be a milestone one. I think this is going to be a fantastic chat because I've got not one returning champ, but two returning champs to do a panel discussion here. I've got the living legend, Rafael Lovato Jr., the greatest American grappler of all time. How's it going, Professor? It's going very well. I'm excited for this one. It's going to be fun. I agree. And I've also got Dominica Oblanite, longtime fan and friend of the show, Marcela Garcia, black belt, multi-time world champion in and of her own right. How's it going, Dom? It's going great. But longtime fan, it should be the headline statement of who I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, if you if you showed up on this podcast at some point, I assume you must be a fan because otherwise, you know, why would you want to talk to me? But anyway, I greatly appreciate both of you coming by as always. And the topic I wanted to get into with both of you today, we talked about this in advance, was inspiration and particularly how inspiration works in jujitsu as one generation kind of takes the center stage, becomes the inspiration for the next generation, what that relationship looks like. And this discussion came up because, Raphael, I know that you've done a lot of work on the Timeless Jiu-Jitsu platform and on sharing your philosophy, using your story to inspire the next generation. And Dominica has been a, a longtime friend, and she's talked in the past about how your journey was specific inspiration to her and how she's been kind of following your journey and patterning after you since the early days. So, man, with that said, I've, you know, I've got some ideas of things to talk about, but I really want you two to drive this conversation. So, uh, Dom, how about you? Anything first that you wanted to launch off with? Sure. Actually, one thing that I've always wanted to ask you, Raphael, was how does it feel to become a world champion as an American? Did you feel like you were at any point ostracized because of how your lineage differed from other people's or because you you don't have the operative word of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is being a Brazilian, and how that kind of guided you into your future careers and future endeavors. Whoa. Okay. Heavy question <laughs> right off the bat. Man, there's no like word or sentence that can describe the feeling and what it meant, what it still means. You know, my journey was really hard and very unique coming from Oklahoma and going to Brazil as a teenager, you know, I'm pretty sure I was the first, definitely part of the first group of American or gringo teenagers to ever go to Brazil to compete at the world championships. I was barely 16 years old. It was 1999. And, you know, so I was in this beautiful time of like being young 
and going to Brazil and seeing the sport still pretty much in its roots and being a part of that, like just beginnings and then seeing it come to where it is today. And, and the world championships that I won was the first worlds to take place in the U S which was a little bittersweet, to be honest. It was beautiful. It was amazing because I got to have a lot of my friends and family and, and people there that meant a lot to me and all my students and things like that. And of course, it was like just a, a beautiful show. The pyramid, it felt like such an upgrade compared to what it, it <laughs> was in Brazil. But definitely like talking about inspiration, you know, going back to my early days in Brazil, I was very inspired by BJ Penn personally. I watched him win the world championships in 2000. I was there and I really set my mind to becoming the next or, you know, one of the Americans to win the worlds. And I really wanted to do it in Brazil. And like, I never thought the worlds would change, change locations, but my mind was like, like, it's so hard to go there and win and doing it on sort of the kind of doing it on like the roots, right? The motherland, right? The motherland. I wanted to to win in the motherland, but I still kind of got to get that same kind of vibe by winning the Brazilian nationals. But that was, they had already announced that the worlds were going to be held in the US that year. And so that was a big reason why I went to Brazil to compete at the Brazilian nationals, because I wanted to win something big in Brazil. And a lot of that, like I said, was just from my childhood inspiration of Going to Brazil and seeing the great champions, especially watching BJ win down there, you know, and just all my history in Brazil and the fact that I had never won in Brazil. I had, I always lost every Worlds. I lost, I lost, you know, just short of, of getting gold. You know, I got silver, I got bronze, and I never won a gold medal at the lower belts. And so that was also part of it was like, you know, kind of proving to myself that I could do it and just breaking through. And so I went and when I won the Brazilian Nationals that year, it really gave me a lot of confidence for the world. But, you know, going back to your question, I think it's just the, you know, it's it's a life dream and goal as I'm sure it was for you, you know, and just that feeling of, man, I did it. I did it. All the sacrifice, all the years of hard work, you know, all the temporary failures and the ups and downs and just, you know, the dream coming true is just a, an amazing feeling. And it was also, you know, going back to my my family, like my father, he was a martial artist. He is a jiu-jitsu black belt and he really like invested in me to become a champion. You know, they they were sending me to Brazil and, you know, supporting me. And so it was not just for me, but it was for them and for my team and and just all the work we had done in Oklahoma. And, you know, it was just this feeling of like, man, anything's possible, you know, and dreams do come true. And it's just really emotional for me and, you know, definitely a moment I'll never forget. Yeah. Steve, do you mind if I continue fielding questions? Absolutely. Make my job easy. <laughs> so I would say that you and I didn't have very similar backgrounds starting out, but I will say that I really like what you just said about kind of operating from a deficit already, like working off of losses to help bring yourself into a win uh -huh. and like finally get yourself in that zone where it's like, okay, I did it. I finally accomplished that goal I set out to do. And for the longest time, I was not a good competitor. I was, I started out as a kid. So there's that caveat, but I rarely won. When I did start competing at the higher levels, I had a couple of really 
awful performances, competitive performances, even though they were at Bluebell, I was kind of set, I was set up by my coaches and by my dad to always expect the, the most from myself and always expect like achievement at the highest level. So it was definitely still disappointing. But there was definitely a moment in time where I felt like my perception of myself as an athlete and my perception of my ability to accomplish the things I wanted to accomplish in jiu-jitsu shifted. And I can't say exactly what it is that brought about this change, but I remember actively beginning to entertain this idea that I could control the physical outcome of what I wanted with my kind of mental preparation. So I would kind of envision myself as winning. I would tell myself that I was going to win regardless of what happened within the match, whether I was trapped in a in a submission that seemed like it was going to end everything or I was losing by 10 points. Regardless of what was happening, I would still figure out a way to get the win, even if it was in the last second, and I would become a world champion, a Pan Am champion, whatever it was that I was wrestling with. And I used to be very religious. I used to be extremely Catholic and I would like pray for these sorts of outcomes. But when I stopped being religious, I started to rely on more of an internal voice to help guide me into that kind of confident sense of mind. I wanted to ask you if you have had any sort of similar experience like that, where coming off of losses, you're obviously thinking, operationally, physically, I can make changes. I can work out more. I can change up my training dynamics. I can eat cleaner. But the mental battle is really huge for athletes like us. So I was wondering if you had any sort of tales from the sidelines of that war that you would like to share. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, most everything was the mental side as far as like breaking through and really starting to achieve what I believed I could achieve, the last hurdle was the mental hurdle. Like, of course, there were a lot of technical challenges being, you know, where I lived and just like due to my location, trying to get access to high level training and people I could learn from and all that sort of stuff. But I felt like even though I was kind of battling against that as far as not having all the high level people to train with, you know, I felt myself at a technical level where, especially at the lower belts, I should have been achieving a little more than what I could achieve. But it was like I would win most of the kind of the regional or like big competitions in California and stuff like that. But then once I got to like the Pan Ams or the Worlds, I would always fall short. It was like the two biggest events, that purple belt, that brown belt, I would always fall a little short in the in the semifinals or finals, something like that. And there was this this last hurdle, which I felt wasn't so much of a technical hurdle, even though I was making technical mistakes, but it was more of a confidence thing. It was, it was a mental thing. And everything changed for me once I got connected with Solo and Shanji Hibero. I competed against Solo when I was 19 in a no-gi match at a big professional event. We, we met in the finals. And he gave me the invitation to train with him. I mean, that that just set everything up for us to to get connected. And then I saw him in Brazil. He invited me to train. And from there, it was like, that was it. That was all she wrote. Like, I immediately fell in love with not just his technique, but his mindset, his approach. And he kept his doors open for me to, you know, get closer and closer, like as far as training with him and his brother in Brazil 
being a part of the team and then even opening up his doors for me to stay with him at his house and do camps with him and Shaji where they lived in the US, which was Ohio at the time, but it was before they moved to San Diego. And then that was the shift because I was like with someone who was already a legend, right? Salo was already a multi-time world champion. I mean, he was already Salo. Shanji was kind of still Salo's brother, but then beginning to make his own mark. I was with Shanji when he won his first world title. And so, you know, I had like this legend and then I had this like young new guy, like around my age, who's starting to become the best and really make his mark. And it was right as I was finishing up my brown belt, you know, career or whatever and becoming a black belt. And so it was just at the perfect time where I was kind of transitioning into the big leagues and just the thought of me doing everything that they were doing and them believing in me and, you know, just feeling like, okay, I'm with the right people, you know, and Salo is mentoring me. He's telling me how to think, how to have a champion mindset, champion attitude. And, you know, it just really started to, I just was absorbing it and it was all rubbing off on me and my mindset started to shift, but I still had a lot to overcome because, you know, training with them, just, I was kind of the third wheel, you know, like they didn't have a big team. It was Ohio. They didn't have a lot of black belts or anything like that. It was really just the three of us. And, you know, I mean, obviously me as a brand new black belt, Shanji's a world champion, Solo's already solo. I was not like getting a lot of offense off in my trainings, right? Like I was training with two of the best in the world and, you know, I was getting beat up a lot. I'll just say that. So I still kind of had to overcome, you know, the feeling of not like seeing all my mistakes day in and day out, but then now I got to go show up and, and compete, you know what I mean? And, and not really rely on my performance in the training as a way to judge if I was prepared for the competition or not. But that was all coming from Solo and him helping me have the mindset, you know, where I used to kind of look at everything as like working against me, like, oh, I'm, I'm from Oklahoma. I don't have all the training everyone else has you know, and I have to work so much harder and all these things. And, you know, they've been training longer than me. They get to compete against better people all year round, you know, because they're basically they're, you know, in Brazil, like it was the part to overcome was beating the best guys in Brazil who had all these competitions, had all this great training. And here I am in Oklahoma trying to travel to Ohio whenever I can and all that. And But Sala was just like, hey, stop thinking of it like that, you know, you deserve to win because you are a kid from Oklahoma who has given everything, is working so hard. You know, you're training with us. You keep showing up, even though we're beating you up, <laughs> you know, and all of that is the reason why you're going to win, not the reason why you're not going to win. And it really shifted. And I started picking up a couple of wins. And then it was just like riding that confidence, you know, it's like, okay, I can't beat the best in the world. I was just watching these guys on video a couple of years ago, and now I'm competing against them, but I can beat them, you know? And, you know, so there were some things to overcome there, but it was just a different time. You know, now, like you see all these kids, they they grow up training with world champions. They've been around them. They do their seminars. They do their camps. You know, they're training with them two, three times a day you know, since they're a little, like, you know, these kids are getting homeschooled and they're just trained professionally. And, 
you know, they're growing up with the mindset that, okay, I'm around these guys. I'm training with them all the time. I'm going to be one of them, you know? And for me, it was like, I was never really fully sure I could be one of those guys until I was already in the mix and, and having to compete against them. And then slowly, but surely I started to kind of believe, okay, yes, I can be one of these guys. I can beat these guys. So it was just a, a lot of, of hardship on that side, just due to the time that I came up in. But at the same time, I'm really grateful that I came up in that era and I got to be like part of that generation to go to Brazil. You know, a lot of kids these days, they, they've never been to Brazil and they're, they're a super high level, you know, and that just was unheard of whenever I came up. Wow. Steve, did you have anything that you wanted to add? Yeah, there, there's something I'd love to ask both of you, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but something I've heard from a lot of the the really high-level, elite, accomplished athletes that I talk to on here is that for a long time, they they didn't think they were remarkable or even very good, and they didn't have any success until they didn't, you know, until something changed. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with Braulio Estima, where he was talking about how the moment for him was at Brown Belt when he made the decision to basically abandon the kind of like boring office desk life and go into jujitsu full time. And for him, that was the moment where things really started clicking together. And Raphael, you touched on this a little bit, but I would love to explore this a little bit more and just ask, you know, for the people out there, how do you know, like where, when does that moment happen when you're no longer just, you know, one of the people on the team who's, you know, they're trying, but they're not particularly remarkable in their track record. And then suddenly something clicks. Like, is there a way to reproduce that or a way that we can help people kind of cross that barrier that both of you have so successfully crossed already? Dominica, why don't you go? I want to hear, I want to hear when that. <laughs> sure. It's so funny that you mentioned Braulio's scenario, Steve, because I am actually a friend of mine is engaged to an MMA fighter who was literally placed in the same exact situation where he went through college, he got a master's degree, he was working in sales, and then in his late 20s, early 30s, he just decided to dash it all to the side and pursue his MMA career dreams, and he's currently doing that now. And it's it's interesting how these scenarios occur because I feel like the second part of your question was, can they be reproduced? And in all honesty, from my personal opinion, I don't think they can be. I think these situations are actually very close to like daily miracles because I assume that what is happening is people are placed in situations or experiences or circumstances where they've kind of had enough. For some people that might be intense suffering, maybe they're in prison somewhere, maybe they're living in a very unstable abusive household or in a relationship that's very controlling. And they kind of have to say enough is enough and, and break free of the life that they have around them and start anew. But it's very difficult to reproduce that organically because most people don't lean into discomfort. Most people don't like to surround themselves in activities that make them feel uncomfortable and then spurn this kind of yearning to break free of that situation and move into something that's more, that's going to feed their soul a little bit more, that's going to set their heart on fire a little bit more. I think for us, the situations were kind of different. Maybe we used our backgrounds to kind of help facilitate the hunger to strive for what it is that we wanted. Like even though, Rafael, you grew up in Oklahoma, maybe you didn't have these resources, you still had this pride of like, well, this is what I come from. 
And even though I was operating from these deficits, I'm going to use these deficits in my favor because I just kind of want it more. And like from where I come from, this is how we're built to like work through adversity in this way and kind of search for better outcomes for ourselves. And when we do get an opportunity to train with the best guys in the room, we're going to make sure we show up and we really put our heart into the training sessions to prove that we deserve to be there. Yeah. Um, for myself, I think that situation that I would probably call like an awakening, <laughs> like an awakening of the power that we have within us to then pursue these like higher aspirations happened when I was 14 and I was competing at Worlds for the first time in the adult division. And even though I was a blue belt, I took it very, very seriously and <laughs> assumed this is like a life or death situation that I was getting myself into. And I was coming into the tournament with a dislocated rib cartilage and it was making it very difficult for me to breathe and kind of sit up or do any motion that involved me turning at my waist. And I was taking these painkillers that unfortunately had given me basically a, a flu and I wasn't eating. I was very sluggish. Even walking up the stairs of the pyramid was making me start to pant. And everyone around me was like, you shouldn't compete. Like, what are you doing? You're not okay. This is just like a, a tournament for you as a blue belt. Don't worry so much about it. But I felt like I had already committed to it. And so I couldn't back out. And in my first match, the woman that I was competing against passed my guard pretty quickly. And she scored three points against me. And in the training room, I was somebody that was known for having a very difficult to pass guard. It was such a such a myth that I was proud of because I took pride in just kind of sitting to my guard, being able to handle everything I needed to from there and get my wins from there. And because she passed me, there's this whole other looming, like dark energy of like, wow, the path for me has been disrupted. Not only am I working against my own body, I'm working against my own physicality and my mental health because I'm already doubting myself. But this person just kind of took my king or my queen, you know, it's kind of done for me. And I just remember hearing my coach's corner telling me not to give up. And I somehow managed to recover guard and sweep her. And as I was sweeping this girl, she went to turtle. And I remember Marcelo's wife yelling <laughs> with so much ferocity that if I just got my hooks in, I would win the entire match and to just get my hooks in. And I remember thinking in my head, like, I can do this. It's really not that big of a deal. <laughs> I remember having an entire conversation with myself internally of like, there's people at war right now. You can get these hooks in. It's not, it's no problem. <laughs> and so I did. I got my hooks in. I got my four points and I ended up winning the match. I took a really long nap after that match. <laughs> and then I went on to win my second, my third and my fourth. And that was the first time I became a world champion. And then I kind of realized that even though I was operating at every deficit I could possibly think of, like everything was going wrong. I hadn't trained for maybe three weeks before I actually even went to Worlds. My cardio wasn't there. Mentally, I was checked out. I still managed to accomplish this huge goal that I had set forth for myself. And I think a little bit of it was magic because of the deficits. Like those deficits made me feel like because the world was against me, I was going to be able to find some sort of sustenance or some sort of fire within me to get me to that end goal. Very long-winded story, but yes, that would be my answer to that question, Steve. 
Awesome. Raphael, what do you think about this? I mean, I know you and I have talked about it a little bit, but I'd also love your ideas here on, you know, how you can kind of leapfrog from being regular to achieving greatness. Well, I love what, what Dominica, like in that story, what you get out of that, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes that I've talked about in several interviews before from Napoleon Hill about how adversity also gives you the seed of, a, of an equivalent advantage, like every adversity carries a seed of an equivalent advantage. And it's like when you're going through something difficult, like an injury or, you know, an illness or just maybe some sort of, you know, something with your family, whatever the case may be, and you're still on a path towards achieving a goal or a dream and things get hard like that, then you you zero in a little more on what's your why, you know, your purpose and you dig a little deeper and you become a lot more focused, I believe. And so inside of, of her story there, you know, everything's kind of going wrong before she even steps on the mat. And then even right as she starts her match, it's all going wrong. But then that that gives you time to kind of zero in on, okay, but I'm still here and I can still do this. Like it's not over. And then, you know, she broke through and then I'm sure every other match after that was probably like even easier and easier because she was in the zone. 100%. She got in the zone. And yeah, so I mean that's happened to me throughout my career and I try to remember that when everything's kind of falling apart and you want to be like, "Man, what the, you know, is going on here?" It's like, "Dude, can I get a break, please?" And I I kind of zero back in and I'm like, "Wait a minute. This is setting me up. This is this is for a reason, like stay focused because when things are going a little wrong, a lot of times that leads to a really, really great ending. And so I, nowadays, like it almost like I almost take it as a good sign, to be honest, because there's been plenty of times where everything kind of felt right, but then, you know, they didn't end as well. So yeah, staying positive is really everything. Like that's what's going on with your, your inner voice is how are you staying positive, staying calm, staying relaxed, you know, and not letting yourself dwindle into the the negative, like, you know, I can't, I don't, I don't want, or when can this be over? Let's just get it over, you know, whatever, all those things that can creep in, like that being able to, I mean, you have to accept a little bit of it. Obviously fear is part of it, but then just hone it and control it and keep it in a good place. That's the that's the trick. But, you know, for me personally, like I definitely believe that there needs to be an all in commitment. You know, if like you hear a lot of people say, like, you know, kind of like cut the ropes, right? Like, you know, you're, you're going out, there's no turning back, like all in, all in, like there is no plan B, you know? And I sort of was all in, I knew what my goal and my dream was from a young age. So like, Going back to my trips to Brazil, my first trip to Brazil in 99, I lost my first match by advantage. And uh, it was extremely close. I didn't even really understand the advantages back then. All I knew was I lost. And then the next year, when I went back to Brazil, I managed to win uh, two medals. I got third in my weight class and second in the open. It was the juvenile division. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't competing in the adult division like Dominica at uh, 14. I mean, I, I did a little bit at the smaller tournaments, but not in, in the big ones like that. 
But man, that really gave me a lot of confidence because I went against a lot of really great champions who were kids at the time, you know, from that era. And it was like, okay, I can beat these kids who've been training longer than me, you know, and train with better people than me. And then that same year, 2000, was when I watched BJ win. And so I really set my goal and everything. And I was, I was sort of all in, but obviously I was still a kid in high school. And after high school, I went to college. And, you know, a lot of that was me kind of feeling like I had to, I really, I had to do it for my parents. Like my, my dad, my mom, they worked so hard. I also worked really hard in high school to get good grades. And I had like some scholarship opportunities. And so I was taking advantage of that. And, you know, my, my, both my parents really struggled to go to college themselves. And so it was something like I had to do it because they couldn't do it. And the opportunity to become like a professional, get a degree, get a good job, all those sort of things. You know, your parents want you, they want their children to have more than what they did, right? And they didn't have those opportunities. And so I felt pressured to go that route because that's what they wanted me to do. And so I was in college, you know, and by the time I'm in college, I'm a brown belt, 18, 19 years old, and I'm really, really not into college. (laughs) And I was not doing well in college and I got extremely good grades all throughout high school. But when high school was over, I was just like, I really felt done with school, but then I had to keep going. Right. And I'm watching everybody, you know, watching all the competitions and I'm like, man, I got to do homework. I'm, I'm trying to get to some of these competitions and training and I'm doing homework on the plane and thinking about papers to write and all that kind of stuff and tests to study for. And I really felt like it was affecting my performance. And at the end of it, I didn't feel like I was doing as good as what I could in jujitsu and I wasn't doing as good as what I could in college. And then this is around the time that I competed against Salu. I was 19 and then he ended up, we ended up bringing him to Oklahoma to do a seminar and I spent the whole week with him and he gave me this invitation. He was like, look, go to Brazil, live in Brazil, train with my brother, be a part of our team, go to all the competitions with us. You'll have a coach. I never had a coach. I was traveling by myself. I never had a coach at any of these competitions. And, you know, I was competing on my own, flying to competitions on my own since I was a a little kid. My dad doesn't fly. He's never been to Brazil. All these times, all these years, I was going without them and uh, just finding other gringos to stay with. Shout out to onthemat.com, Scott Nelson, you know, my sponsor back in those days, he would take care of me. I would get random people to help me and be with me, you know, but I didn't really have a coach coach. And then I'm getting this opportunity from Solo, you know, to have a coach, be a part of a team, have people to be with at the competitions and all of that. And, and basically I set my parents down one night and I just said, look, I got to do this. I can't, I can't live with any regret. This is what I want. And I'm like, Hey, you know, what'd you expect? You got me a martial arts since I was a kid. I'm in love. I'm in love with it. You know what I mean? I'm following your footsteps, you know, my dad's footsteps of living your passion. And I'm like, look, school's always going to be there. I can always go back one day, but I can't ever, you know, travel back in time and become a champion again, you know? So he was a little reluctant, but I was able to talk him into it. And that was it. I dropped out of college. I charged up a credit card and I moved to Brazil and I lived off a credit card for several months. (laughs) And that was it. I went all in and that was the shift. That was like, 
no looking back now, you know, and, and I, I believe that's super important. Going back to what Dominique was talking about, like getting out of your comfort zone, taking the risk, like believing, like if you're not all in, you're never going to fully reach your potential. You know, I tell that with a lot of the school owners that I end up getting connected with that join my association. Sometimes they, they come in and they're still working another job and they're like, man, how do I make my school better? How do I make my business better? First thing I say is quit your job. You know, you got to go all in, put everything into it, commit 100% to it, believe in it, and it's going to happen. And these people would finally, you know, get the confidence and they would quit their jobs. And next thing you know, they have over 200 students. You know, I don't believe there's another way. You can't convince me in any walk of life that there's any way to reach your full potential without giving every single bit of yourself to the process. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. You know, it's not like, oh, you go all in, you're just going to start winning right away, you know, or, or whatever. There's still going to be hardships, but you know, the way you don't let it break you and you keep believing and keep going 100%, you know, at the end, it's going to happen. You know, it's funny you bring that up because something that I've always thought is that, you know, having a, a good situation can be a really dangerous trap, right? I mean, if you're if you're in a miserable job that pays garbage and you hate every day there, you're strongly motivated to make that big leap and try something big and exciting. But where it gets dicey is if you're in a pretty decent situation, you know, you've got a good job, you've got a good life, and that can be very seductive. It's like a golden handcuffs, right? You get stuck there and it's hard to leave because you've got to give up so much. And of course, human beings being what we are, you know, we're very averse to loss. And some Sometimes the idea of losing something scares us more than the possible massive gains we could get by trying something new. So I, I think that that is an exercise that a lot of people should probably do more is just kind of do a little return on investment analysis of their life, right? Are, are the things that they stand to lose really that scary? And how much do they stand to gain by shaking it up? I mean, most of the, the big wins that have come from my life have come from leaving something else behind that I honestly probably didn't want to leave behind. But at, at some point you outgrow things and you have to let go of the past. Yeah, 100%. I can't agree with you more. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I feel like even if anyone out there is like trying to do something like that, but they're struggling with how to start, like I went through a process like this, maybe in my mid 20s, where I kind of just decided to gut my life like a fish a little bit and think about what was really important to me and what kind of habits were going to be the ones that were um, beneficial to my future and my goals. And one one thing that was very easy to immediately start to think about was like how I was using my time um, and whether my time was benefiting my goals. So usually if you work if you work a job that's comfortable, even if you're not miserable in it, the, your job will take away from you working towards what you actually want, whatever the passion might be. And the thing that we get trapped in usually is we work the nine to five and then the five to nine is used for recharging, for watching TV, for hanging out with our friends, for going to get drinks with someone after work and thinking about that. And is that sustainable? Is that helping us reach our goals? Is that moving us forward? Um, so one thing I asked myself was like, is watching TV or is like watching Netflix after work really helping me grow, whether it's actually achieving a goal or just helping me grow as a human being? And like, can I replace that with a walk with an audiobook, or just like sitting down and reading something or just, I don't know, doing some sort of mindfulness practice? Like, will that be more helpful in the future? So that's something really simple that we can start to think about is how we can adjust 
tiny little habits that we've gotten used to as comfort habits and quit them and leave them behind for something that is, again, going to be tons more beneficial for our future. If I can take over again, Steve, I really want to ask both of y'all, honestly, if there have ever been moments in y'all's lives where you were extraordinarily close to quitting the passion that you decided to kind of lay down your life for. I know, Raphael, you've had jiu-jitsu, you have MMA, you've had your personal struggles, your physical struggles and in, in both. And it's difficult to kind of give up on the realm of martial arts, especially as a competitor and like set set the intention that I'm done competing. But has there ever been a moment where you were like, I don't, I'm not sure if this is for me anymore. And if so, how did you find your way back from that? Not really. <laughs> no, I've, uh, I'm, I'm pretty stubborn. I don't, <laughs> like, I definitely had a couple of rough patches that where my confidence got a little shook. One of those was the year before I met Solomon. In 2002, my first year as a brown belt, I went 50 and 50, meaning, you know, I won, I lost as many matches as I, as I won. And I really was not used to that. I performed pretty well at Purple Belt before I was, I, I kind of went on an undefeated streak at Purple Belt at every tournament I entered, except the Pan Ams and the Worlds. But I still hit the podium at those events. And then I go to brown belt. But keep in mind, this was right when I was starting college. And I was, I was like depressed. I was, I was not, every day I went to school, I was depressed. I really just wanted to train and I was not happy. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have anyone I could relate to because, you know, they were college kids, you know, partying or just enjoying being in school and being free from their parents or whatever. And I just wanted to be a champion. I didn't party at all. I didn't go out. I didn't do anything. So I had nothing to relate to with the people around me. And then when I went to train, I always felt like I was like trying to catch up, you know, because I couldn't train all day, every day I was in school. And so I got depressed and that definitely affected my performances. And I was just a little lost, but I knew what I wanted. And then the next year I performed better. You know, it was, it was a big jump purple to brown. You know, when you're brown belt, you're starting to really compete against like professional athletes. I mean, nowadays there's professional athletes in the blue belt division, hundred percent. Like it's crazy now, the level in the adult division, like, you know, there's kids that have been training 10 years and they're an adult blue belt, you know, and, and they're training three times a day. They have sponsors, they have strength conditioning coach, you know, they're with world champions and they're destined to become great. Back then it wasn't quite like that at like blue belt, even purple belt, but definitely by the time you got to brown, the guys on the podium were all professional and I, I just couldn't compete against that and uh, with where I was in my life. And I took it really hard. And like I said, I was depressed because like I wasn't happy at school. And then if I didn't do well at the competition, I was sad. And then I would be on the plane sad from losing and then trying to do homework and get ready for school the next week. And yeah, it was just not good. But then, like I said, the next year I met Solo and then I dropped out <laughs> and and things got a lot better. But, you know, have I ever been at a breaking point like where I was going to quit, quit? Nah, no. I mean, I've, I definitely took some losses really hard and had to kind of shut down and just like regroup and get my head back in the game. But I've always been, I mean, this is my life. This is, this is everything. Like I, I have a school, I grew up in the school, my dad's school, and then it became my own. And it's like, honestly talk about inspiration 
you know, of course, I've been inspired by so many great champions that I've came up with and all that. But I'll just say day to day, you know, my students and doing my best to be an example for them and, you know, show up the way they show up, you know, they have their their stuff that they go through in life and, you know, they, they work all day, they have their families, they have everything, but they still come to this mat to learn and be better and to, to feel the energy and the energy starts from the top and works its way down, you know? And so no matter what happens in competition or in my personal life or whatever's going on, when I come to my academy, I have to show up. I have to be here. I have to be present. I have to be ready to give my best and, you know, try to be an example to them and help them. And, you know, like if, if I'm in a shitty mood or I'm depressed or whatever's going on, you know, they're not going to want to come back, you know? So they inspire me to keep going and always do more and just try to be the, the best example for them, you know, lead from the front, you know, 100%. And I love it. I love teaching them no matter what I'm going through when I'm on these mats and I'm here and I see my students smiling and see them here ready to just give themselves to me and jujitsu and everything It makes me want to do better. So that's definitely helped me in any of the hardships that I've been through, you know, I still have my school, you know, and I got to come here and it's like, man, this is how I get through everything. And it's with my students, is with training jujitsu, keeps me going and it makes me want to, you know, stay hungry and just keep learning and, you know, never give up. That's what it's all about. Never give up. You keep going, you know, a black belt is a white belt who never quit. And I really just try to embody that in everything so no, I've never considered another life at all. Let me, let me pile onto that here. Cause I've got kind of a related question. You talked about how a big motivation for you, Raphael is the teaching aspect and giving back to, to students. And I, I know Dom, we've talked about this as well. This is something that I find to be an interesting dichotomy that teachers have to deal with. Oliver Taza actually posted a great post about this the other day where he talked about how he has to be a, a selfish competitor during the day and a selfless teacher at night. And it's hard to wear both of those hats, right? It's hard to switch from that mindset of, you know, it's all about me. You know, I'm the receiver. I'm trying to take care of myself to it's not about me anymore. My job is to grow the next generation. And I'd love to know how you balance that and how you migrate from one mindset to another, because it is hard to kind of hold those two ideas in your head at the same time. Dom, do you want to talk about it? <laughs> sure. I'd be interested to know, do you teach somewhere regularly? What What is your current jujitsu situation look like? Okay, so I did teach regularly for about four years in an academy in Long Island City, Queens, where I was the head instructor, and it was an amazing, amazing time. But about a little over a year ago, I went to Uriah Faber's gym in Sacramento with my boyfriend who was deciding to move out there to pursue his MMA career. And after training with Uriah, Uriah almost immediately offered me the role of head instructor or one of the head instructors at his gym. And he was very interested in kind of cultivating. Actually, his words were, I think this gym needs some strong female energy, which I loved. So I was 100% interested in kind of contributing to that. Uh -huh. But even though I set the intention to kind of commit to the gym in that way, as soon as I got there, I blew out my ACL. So I wasn't able to 
I wasn't able to take on that role. I'm still I'm still in the recovery stages and I just didn't want to be in a position where I was already going to be teaching with caveats in mind. I thought that there were were going to be more capable instructors that were going to be able to field like more the more advanced requests of like some of the people there that are UFC fighters and they require like more special attention integrating like the worlds of MMA and jiu-jitsu in classes and I I really didn't think that I would be present for that especially with a serious injury. So right now I don't teach. The all the teaching that I do is is traveling for seminars and actually I think I'm okay with it because it Steve what Oliver Taza said is extremely correct and I can see Rafael that you care so genuinely about your students and about your school just from the way that you talk about them and it I feel like I'm still in the stages where I want to be selfish. And I think it's better that I say that to myself now than I pretend to be like this somebody that really needs to give back to students in a consistent way to one student body. I realized when I was kind of done teaching, when I made the move to California, that I really didn't mind not having to kind of teach consistent classes. And I actually noticed that I would feel very drained from like the regular teaching. Like I'd always have to come up with something new and always have to field new students versus very advanced students versus black belts who would come and how to kind of make the class organized so that everybody benefits. And even though I had a lot of fun teaching, I also noticed that I was paying a lot less attention to my own jujitsu and focusing on everybody else's paths. I'm not saying that I'm being selfish in regards to jujitsu. I'm being selfish right now in regards to pursuing other passions in my life that I feel like I had cast aside to give myself the opportunity to go headfirst into jujitsu and accomplish everything I set out to accomplish. And I feel like the real problem with instructing and the real problem with gym ownership is some of these people that do decide to embark on this journey decide that it's enough to just kind of show up and teach. And I've heard from so many students of teachers like that, that the environment will just kind of disintegrate into something that's like useless or toxic, or you have just kind of stale teaching happening because the people don't care. So I think it's more important for people to entertain other walks of life besides teaching because they need to be prepared to make a commitment to their student body. You can't be a lazy or absent teacher. You can't be away for six months out of the year. You can't like not answer your students' calls for help. You really have to commit to them. To me, it's kind of like committing to having a child. You have to really take care of the business and nurture the business and nurture your students. Otherwise, you risk having an academy that fails and you really risk kind of putting people in a in a strange situation where they've relied on you for this long, not only as an instructor, but sort of as a mentorship figure. And when you kind of remove yourself, then you're being a little bit irresponsible with like what they're to do next and how they're going to pursue the rest of their journey. So I'm really, really happy that guys like you and Oliver exist. But right now for me, I think I'm kind of moving away from that and possibly letting that be something that happens in my future into my 30s just not right now not when i'm yeah. in more of an exploring sort of phase in my life yeah i get it you know what i was going to say or you know kind of exact going off of exactly what you're talking about you know to answer your question steve i think it's all about passion man you got to have the passion for it too you know like for me i have a lot of different passions and uh, well not a lot i have a few and 
just so happens they all work together. I love being a, a competitor, a fighter. I love being on a mission. I love having a challenge, but I also love being a teacher. My father was a teacher. You know, he was my first teacher. And growing up watching him teach classes and seeing his effect, his impact on the the students, you know, the people in our community and how he helps people, you know, it, it definitely inspired me. You know, he, once again, he set an example for me and I, I fell in love with teaching from a young age. I started teaching classes regularly by the time I was 15 years old because he and I were naturally the most advanced people on our mats because of you know, the access that we were getting by traveling. You know, my dad was going to Texas once a week to train with Carlos Machado. I was traveling to Brazil and California and all over on my Christmas break, summer break, whatever. And so we were, we were naturally getting more knowledge. And then when we came home and in order to help my dad, I would teach some classes. And so for me, I fell in love with teaching at a young age. And I also found that a great passion of mine was leading a competition team because I'm a competitor at heart. And so at the time I was 15 years old, I started, you know, I told my dad, Hey, I really want to, you know, make a competition team, people that are going to want to travel, go to these competitions with me, people that want to, you know, challenge themselves and, you know, try to kick some ass, you know what I mean? Like, I want to know who those guys are. And then I want them to be spending time with me. Let's work hard. Let's push each other and let's do it. And so he let me start doing a, a competition team training. And at that time when we had one mat space and, you know, everyone was working. And so we used to do it at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning because that was the only day no one had to work and we had to get done by nine. So the kids class could get ready to start after that. And so I found out real quick who was who, who would show up at a 6 a.m. on a Saturday, only the most committed guys and uh, it was really only like four or five guys would show up and train with me. And, you know, I would just be like kind of ridiculous with how hard I would make it. But, you know, I was I was a kid, so I, I didn't get as sore as everybody else. And I would just go crazy and just like conditioning and, you know, hard rounds and just a lot of specific training, stuff like that. But anyways, I found those passions at a young age. And so, you know, growing up, like definitely... I had my period of time where I thought, okay, you know, if I'm going to go to school, why don't I go to school in California or something like that, where I could have more access to high level training and just be where all the competitions are. You know, I thought about that and different times in my life where I was like exploring, you know, my personal goals and what would be the best situation to make those happen. But to be honest, what's kept me here in Oklahoma all these years is our school, the family business, what my dad started and carrying it on, building our own black belts, you know, just really trying to take his dream and, you know, make it become as big as what it can be. It became my dream too. And once again, teaching and our students and, you know, our work here is what's kept me here all these years. And you know, whenever I, whenever it's time to switch, yes, you have to be selfless and you're a lot more than a teacher. You know, you are a mentor, you are a guide, you are, you need to be ready to give inspiration to everybody. 
but I try to think about how like that's also a part of me. Like I am a teacher and I, I have a passion for teaching and I'm fulfilling a piece of who I am, you know? And so I don't even believe I'd be as good of a fighter as, you know, what I am today if I wasn't a teacher, because there'd be another part of me that wasn't fulfilled, you know, that wouldn't feel complete because I want to teach. I want to help others. I love it. I can get lost for hours on the mats, helping other people. I love it. I want to show them what I know, you know, and I know that when they get better, it makes me better too, you know? So at the end of the day, it comes back to me. And, you know, I think it's just, it's who I am. And I wouldn't be as good at anything if I wasn't doing that. It's like, you know, it's just who I am. And I think it's just, you learn how to be present. You know, when it's time for me to train, I'm 100% focused on giving my best and doing, you know, everything I need to do to be successful. And then, yeah, I could rest and be selfish and just lay around and do nothing or recover, you know, whatever. Or I can fulfill another part of me and be present and show up and give my best to these people. And then it's like, okay, same thing when I go home, do my best. You know, some days I have to check myself, right? do my best to be the best husband I can be. Now it's like, okay, I also have to check in and be the best father I can be. And it's just like, you know, like what Dom was saying, I don't know, what can you do with your time? How can you learn and grow? And I believe for me, teaching is part of my learning and growing as well. And, you know, being present, give your best into that moment and it all makes you better. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic advice, both of you. I couldn't agree more. I think there's a lot to be said about, look, if you're passionate about it, it's probably always going to work out. And yeah, if teaching isn't something that you're passionate about, it really does kind of show up in the wash, right? Your students are going to be the first ones to know. And I think that igniting that that passion inside yourself when it gets to the point where giving back to that next generation is something that you really want to do, you'll probably do amazing at it. But it's really hard to do that when you still have individual goals and individual things that you want to focus on. Um, this is something that as I get older, I've kind of been juggling, you know, it, it's harder for me now to put in the kind of mat time that I used to, especially because among other things, I, you know, I have so much podcast stuff to do. You know, it's not just the podcast, but I mean, Dom, you know, this, in addition to doing the weekly show, we do a ton of premium stuff. We've got our coaching service. I mean, there's hundreds of, of reviews and, and, and customer messages and help that we have to deal with on a, you know, daily, weekly, monthly basis. It, it adds up. And that stuff I've gotten super passionate about because, you know, it, if I'm doing something something for me, that's great. I benefit me. But if I'm putting something out there that benefits thousands of other people, just the scale is hard to deny. Right. And I love the ability to help other people in that capacity. So I, it's funny at this point in time, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's always hard, easier to say this, but if, you know, if someone told me that I couldn't train jujitsu anymore, you know, I had a medical condition or something and the doctor said, Steve, you just can't do this anymore. I think I could be at peace with that. But if someone told me I can't make BJJ mental models anymore, I could not accept that. It's just <laughs> kind of funny how your passion changes over time and you can kind of stay involved in the same space and you can still contribute and still do things, but your the way you do it and your individual focus might shift over the years. Yeah, 100%. Following off of what you just said, Steve, I think there's a greater conversation to be had about growth and how we can continue to find value in the things we're passionate about and find newness and like new ways to kind of express ourselves within within the realm of that passion. 
throughout decades and throughout years of like having these interactions? Because Raphael, you've been doing this for a really long time. And you've always, I'm assuming that the transition to MMA, even though it was natural, it was still like an, another realm, but you still kept at jujitsu. You still kept at um, making this your passion and, and putting kind of your school at the forefront of what is important to you. So as you're kind of growing and as you are finding new placements within your passion and as you're kind of finding even almost like you're now a person, like a, a person people look up to and you're somebody that inspires people and you're sort of like a celebrity in, in your cultivated martial arts space. How do you continue to find, find that passion and find that kind of resilience and persistence to keep learning, keep teaching, keep even working through these difficult training sessions you're still putting yourself through? How do you deal with kind of the longevity of the things that you're juggling? Well, that's definitely where my my mindset is. You know, you see longevity. You know, Steve brought it up earlier. I definitely, like in my younger years, it was about being world champion and making my mark. And then inside of that, I, I wanted to inspire people. Like I, part of the reason why I stayed in jiu-jitsu as long as I did was to really be a a figure for those who were in locations that didn't have access to jiu-jitsu, to high-level jiu-jitsu. And, you know, I figured that with my story of being in Oklahoma, like, you know, Oklahoma, like who thinks that, you know, Oklahoma would ever be some sort of jiu-jitsu hotbed, you know, where there'd be world-class jiu-jitsu, you know? And I just thought like that me being where I was from, I could be an inspiration to people all over the world who didn't have access to high level jujitsu and just show them that, Hey, if I could do it, you can do it. And so like knowing that I was able to inspire great champions like yourself and, you know, some of the other Americans and Europeans, people from all over that it just were not in a place, you know, they didn't grow up with uh, world champion black belts, you know, right down the street, you know, knowing that I was able to inspire them or give them some sort of positive impact, some sort of belief, you know, really means a lot to me to this day. And it was something I was really set out to do when I was still competing in jujitsu into my, like at the end of my twenties, into my thirties. But then I knew I had, I had to do MMA and I'm happy I waited as long as I did, but that was part of the, the journey, the next challenge, the next phase for myself. And, and really now, you know, I'm about to turn 40 here in a few months. Now I'm, I'm really like trying to inspire people with the, the timeless jujitsu mindset. The timeless jujitsu is just something that I've been trying to put out there, you know, to help people find their their mindset, find their practice and lifestyle to build longevity. Because now, yeah, I still want to, you know, I'm going to compete forever. There, there's no way around that. It's who I am. I'll do master stuff until I can anymore. I want, I want my kids to see me challenge myself. Hopefully, maybe we do a tournament together one day if they're into it, you know what I mean? If they want to do some jujitsu, I will definitely get ready with them and prepare and help them and compete with them. Like I'm really like, that's, that's in my heart right now. But you know, at the end of the day, it's just about like doing what you love and, and how can you do that for as long as possible? I, I believe that, you know, this keeps us young. Like, you know, you're on the mats, of course, maybe my body feels it a little more afterwards than some of these other kids. But when we're on the mats, we all feel young. I feel like we're all the same age. You know, we're all just doing what we love, smiling, you know, having fun and, you know, being each other up a little bit. And then 
you know, maybe talking a little trash afterwards and just learning from each other. And, you know, it's fun. It's fun. I still feel like a kid. I still feel like a kid, a hundred percent. I still have the same mindset. I want to, you know, train as hard as I can, learn as much as I can, and just try to get a little better. And, you know, I think with the way jujitsu is, with how much it evolves and how much constant inspiration is out there, you know, with the the new champions and all the evolution and the way the game's just always changing. There's always something to work on. There's always something to be inspired to do and to take you to the mats. And of course, then like I said, I have my own students inspiring me to keep getting better as well so I can make them better. And so I really don't feel, you know, except maybe some physical stuff, <laughs> I really don't feel any different on the inside. And I feel like now I have a different set of knowledge and like information to offer people, which is just like, okay, how do you do it? You know, like being 40 and and I'm going to keep going and I'm only going to learn more. I'm only going to get better. But you know, what is the mindset? What are the, the practices that I can do? Whether it's, you know, changing the way I train, doing more recovery, developing a yoga mobility practice. How do I approach the gym? How do I approach my technique and, you know, how do I still put myself in a position where I can compete with uh, the 20 year olds of today, you know, guys that I'm almost old enough to be their father, you know, like, how do I do that? And I really believe there is a way, I mean, there it's, it's being shown and I'm trying to be an example of that. And, you know, the end goal is I want to be in my 80s and 90s and still put my gi on and get on the mats and show some stuff, you know what I mean? And and still learn some stuff. You know, one thing I'm doing these days, if you follow me, you'll see I, I bring a lot of like the best champions, whether they're legends or like new, younger, younger guys. I bring a lot of great champions here to my school to uh, teach seminars. Yeah, we call them timeless jujitsu seminars. So here at my school, Wednesday night, is our timeless jujitsu night. I have a class. It's the timeless jujitsu class. It's a class that I 100% do my best to teach every week. Um, I try not to miss Wednesday nights when I'm traveling. I try to leave on Thursday if I can. So that's the culture that I'm trying to put out there is just like, you know, be a forever student, you know, always learning, always growing. And then being a teacher as well, like I build up a lot of great teachers and coaches and then always challenge yourself, whether it's through competition or any other way. That's kind of the timeless trio right there. It's like, I'm always going to be a student. I'm always going to be a teacher. And I'm always going to challenge myself. Anyways, Wednesday nights is when I bring these guest instructors to teach. And uh, man, I've had so many awesome guys and people that are not in my team. You know, of course, Sean Gibetto, Victor Hugo, they come all the time. You know, those are my friends, my brothers. But I kind of go outside the box where this didn't used to really be done that much. You know, even just a few years ago. I feel like it happens a little more these days, but, you know, learning and training with people outside of your team. And I feel like I'm like in this cool position where, you know, I'm, I'm really like friends with everybody for the most part, like, you know, coming up, I've, I've always had a good relationship with, with guys on other teams. You know, there's guys from Alliance that I'm really close to guys from Gracie Baja, guys from Checkmat, whatever. A lot of them are guys I've competed against and we just developed a lot of mutual respect for each other. But you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm friendly and, and I, I have like, I show love to these guys and they show love to me back. And I've just kind of like, I've made a bucket list of people that I wanted to learn from. 
And I also want my students to learn from them and be inspired by them. And I've been hitting that list like crazy. So in the last couple of years, right after the pandemic, when things kind of got back to a better place, you know, I've had Lucas Lepre, Homolo Bahal. I had Leandro Lowe here. Um, I was actually like one of the last seminars he ever did. You know, it was, yeah, uh, very, feel very grateful that I was able to make that happen. I just had Hobson Mora here. I had Mika and, uh, and Baby Shark here. My goodness, who else am I missing? I mean, there's more, there's more. I've had several awesome guys all from other teams and I brought them out to, to teach seminars and they would stay a couple of days and we get on the mats and I learned, I, man, I learned some really cool stuff from Lepre, from Homo, from Leandro, things that I do now today that are in my game. And that's part of like, you know, like what you're saying, like, you know, staying inspired, I think is, is really the key. And these people, they inspire me. And so I want to bring them here. And then, you know, it's like helps my students and it just creates that, that energy and they feel their passion and, you know, it's awesome. So one of these days, got to get you out here too, Dom. We got to make that happen. <laughs> 100%. I had an opportunity to actually stop by when my boyfriend and I were doing a cross-country trip to California. But unfortunately, we were on a very tight schedule, so we couldn't really do that. But hopefully soon. I wanted to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying about in regards to timelessness and kind of enjoying the journey as you continue to age and but still not feeling like you're aging because time kind of stands still when you're doing something like jujitsu, which puts you in a flow state. I wanted to expand that a little bit and into like the world beyond jujitsu and say that I think I think for most people, in order to kind of feel like you're not aging and you're still finding newness and kind of like innocence and just new expressions in life, you really do have to let go of thinking you know everything right and kind of letting yourself be a student of anything that life brings to you. So entertaining um, new developments, entertaining new experiences and kind of leaning into stuff that is the unknown and letting yourself enjoy not knowing anything, you know what I mean? I think that might be the key to living like a fulfilled life where you still feel like you're exploring and you don't feel like you're kind of just standing in one place aging and letting things age around you as well. Yeah, and I, I think jujitsu teaches that to us. That's one of the beauties of it is, you know, the white belt mindset. Like, you're never going to know it all. You're, you're never not going to make mistakes like you're always going to be reminded that you can be better in jiu-jitsu. There is no end, you know, the the way it always is evolving and, you know, someone comes with something new that you haven't seen and boom, you get caught in it or, you know, just the, I mean, we're, we're not perfect and we're always reminded of that when we're on the mats and that's the point, you know, like you've been a black belt for several years now. I'm sure you would agree that, uh, since you got your black belt, you've probably learned just as much, if not even more, since becoming a black belt than what you did before. And I mean, w w would you agree with that, Don? Yes. No, I would totally agree. I would also add on to that, that getting my black belt was actually probably one of the best things for my ego that could have possibly happened. Like, I know a lot of people lie in wait to get their black belt and they see it as some sort of like marker to a finishing line. But for me, I felt like I got upgraded to an ultra white belt. I yep. felt like, okay, now we're in a sea of many accomplished and talented practitioners, Some, a lot of which have so much to teach me and are, are better than me technically and physically. 
And then I kind of had to give up this idea that I was the only one that kind of could teach people and could offer something to people that I could learn not just from other black belts, but from my own students who were lower belts. I could even learn from white belts that were coming in. And it was just a massive, massive lesson that was extremely encouraging and made me feel like the road through jujitsu was endless. Yeah, for sure. That's that's it. Endless, timeless. It doesn't end. Always learning, you know, and being a black belt, I think it's like it gives you more responsibility to in you to get better. That's how I feel. Like I must keep growing because I don't want my skills to get stuck in a certain point and I'm not ever going past that. So yeah, that's how I feel. That's that's definitely the timeless mindset. And that's where I think jujitsu can be a great reminder for people. You know, they show up to be a student here, you know, be a student in, in all areas of your life that you can, you know, keep learning, whether it's business relationship, you know, a new practice, you know, like how can you keep growing by continuing to learn in other areas of your life? And that's what jujitsu has given to me. And I definitely try to do that as much as I can. Let me ask you guys a question. We've been talking about the importance of always learning and being a forever student and, and growth over time. One of the interesting things about jujitsu is that the speed of the sport and the acceleration of new knowledge is way different today from when we started. You know, even 15 years ago, there really wasn't that much in the grand scheme of things to jujitsu. You know, there was a handful of techniques, a handful of submissions. And even back then, it felt like this was this never ending sea of things that you would never perfect. But since then, just the, the evolution of the sport and the rate of development and new ideas is Man, sometimes it just seems impossible to follow. So a question actually, Dom, that our, our mutual friend and mentor, Emily Kwok, had, and she wanted me to make sure we ask on this for both of you, was how do you suggest that especially older practitioners, you know, as you kind of get past that competitive period in your life, how do you keep on top of all of this stuff, all of these new techniques, all of these new things to learn? It just feels so, so overwhelming sometimes. Any tips or ideas on how an older practitioner can keep up to date on all of the new cutting edge stuff? Raphael, I'll let you feel this one first because you are older. Than just me. a little bit. Be careful there. Be careful. <laughs> Man. Uh, well, if I'm... <laughs> If I'm going to be a little like promotional, I would just say, hey, check out timelessjujitsu.com and I will answer all those questions. But no, here's another thing that I've learned. So over the years, being surrounded by so many high level minds and specialists in different fields, whether it's in a weight room, on a like a, a yoga mat, you know, striking arts, wrestling, judo, doesn't matter. Everybody preaches the fundamentals. You even hear it in other sports, right? All over the place. People tell you that if you want to have longevity, you master the fundamentals. I mean, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan is one of my biggest inspirations. You know, I grew up in that time, like, you know, obviously he's Michael Jordan, but, uh, you know, look how his game as he got older, how he mastered the fundamentals when he couldn't jump over everybody anymore. You know, he had his fadeaway jumper, right? He always had great defense. You know, he kept it simple and that gave him a game that was successful, you know, for a decade plus, like many, many, many years, right? Kobe did the same, you know, just like you look at that, the classics never go out of style, you know, closed guard's going to always work, 
right? Pressure passing is going to always work. You take athleticism out of it. For sure, we must try to improve our bodies. And a lot of that is just purely for injury prevention, okay? So becoming more mobile, working on your movement, you know, just body weight movement exercises to help you have more agility, you know, to recover more flexibility, all those sort of things are super important because if there's a position that you can't go to without hurting yourself, you know, then you're limited, you're restricted, and there is more possibility for injury. But let's take speed and strength and even flexibility to an extent. Let's take that out of the equation and look at the positions and the techniques that we can do forever, you know? And that's what I feel like I specialize in. That's what I feel like I have a new passion to really pass on to help people understand that because I really feel like I know what works. You know, I've been a black belt now for 19 years, been competing this level for nearly two decades against all the crazy, amazing champions, legends, all the way from, you know, the 90s to today. And, you know, I know what I can still do. The same moves I was doing back then, I can still do today against the kids today, right? And so that's where I feel like I have this new thing to offer people. But, you know, like if you see a move and you think that you have to be super fast, strong, or flexible to do it, then nine times out of 10, that move is going to have a window at which it can possibly be performed. And that window is probably in your 20s to early 30s. And then if it's like, oh, well, now I can't do that anymore. I can't move that way. I'm not fast enough. I'm not strong enough. I can't put my foot behind my head anymore because I have a knee injury. I have a hip injury, whatever. Then you just wasted time, right? You've put energy and time into practicing that move for five, 10 years or however long it was. And maybe it gave you some some success, right? But at the end of the day, it's about doing forever, doing this forever. And the last thing I'd want is then someone to say, oh, I can't do this anymore because of my body. And so now I'm going to quit, you know, because all the jujitsu that I did and I put my energy into, I really can't do it anymore. And so it's not fun anymore. And so I'm going to quit. And at the end of the day, if we quit for me as a teacher, if I have a student that ever quits, that's when I feel like a failure. You know, I want my students to be doing this forever. And so, you know, giving them the jujitsu that I know that they can do forever now, rather than later, you know, when they are aging, I think is super important, right? Even if you're in your twenties, develop your timeless game. Now get your classic, strong, fundamental game going now, because then you don't have to change. You know, even as you get older, you're only going to be better at what it is you're going to do forever anyways, instead of having to say, you know what, I can't do this move anymore. I I have to change my game. You know, you know, for me, my game has not changed. It's not really not changed, but we can close guard forever. We can butterfly hook sweep forever. We can mount forever. You know, we can pass on our knees forever. We can't always stand to pass when we have knee injuries or we're slow. We can't run around anymore, you know? like all that kind of stuff, like zero in on it now, develop that practice, develop the appreciation for those, I do quotation marks on old school or whatever, because for me, it's like, there is no older or new, you know, yes, there's a modern, but blah, 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 blah. It's about 
what works and is what what is going to work for your body type, for your your personality, you know, what you enjoy doing. Like there is a perfect game for you that is going to last forever. And that's the timeless part of the timeless process. The search is continuing to find that, refine it, you know, get inspiration and develop that for the long haul so that, you know, when I'm in my fifties and I'm on the mats, you know, and the 20 year old young champion shows up, Hey, I want to be able to give him a good round for sure. I want to be able to give him a good round. You know, when my son, (laughs) when he's 15 and I'm 55, I want to be able to give my son a good round. You know what I mean? I don't want my son to kick my butt. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's new inspiration now. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Dom, how about you? I would love to pick your brain on this one. Sure. Wow. Okay. Well, echoing Raphael's kind of point driving home that fundamentals and foundational movements are key. I I would definitely agree with that. I think when in doubt, we should definitely return to what it is that as we were coming up, helped us build the very beginning stages of our game. And these movements are, as he said, are super accessible to anybody of any kind of age or any sort of body composition, anything like that. These are the movements that we should go back to whenever we feel like we're trapped in a jujitsu rut or a technique rut. One thing that I'll say that is a little bit less technically structured is to let go of uh, expectation. Because even even myself, like I know I'm not a very like old person, but I'm three years away from officially being able to compete in masters and having taken some time away from jujitsu, I can definitely see how the skill level has advanced exponentially. Like it's not it's a it's a night and day difference where jujitsu was ten years ago compared to today versus twenty years versus thirty. The fundamentals do more or less stay the same, but some of the advancements that have been made with some positions that are not necessarily applicable to many body types and many walks of life. One that I'll mention is like any sort of Barambolo game or any game that relies heavily on inversion. There have been such crazy advancements made in those regions, and it's difficult for somebody to look at someone that is on level 10 of that game as they're just starting out learning how to invert and how to get themselves to have their feet touch the ground when they're inverting rather than just kind of flopping over. Um, It can be very discouraging to witness all kind of the great young champs doing this, but they're not necessarily practicing for longevity. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the movements that people do that they commit to that are harsher on the body or have a higher percentage rate of injury they're not built for longevity. And even those young athletes will eventually have to give up certain positions or certain motions within their game because they're just not accessible to their bodies anymore. And that's totally fine. The beauty of jiu-jitsu is that it will always continue evolving and newer, younger athletes will always have newer, more convoluted, more intricate games to play with. So as older practitioners, as more seasoned practitioners, or as people that are coming in that are a little bit bewildered by all this new information, I would say just let go of any expectation you have of being somebody that has to know everything. You can definitely notice where the holes in your game are. That's the first thing I say to think about before you decide to entertain something that's ultra complex or ultra unapproachable. Notice where your holes are and notice what can be done to accommodate the positions you're having difficulties with and accommodate the situations you're having trouble with in your day-to-day training life, not even worrying about the highest levels of competition. 
once you put yourself in more of a learning mindset rather than a, oh shit, I'm really far behind, I should try to be catching up mindset, you'll notice that not everything that is out there is going to be applicable to you and not everything is even worthwhile. You know what I mean? Some people have really strange games. I'm thinking of Terere where he used to really like to turtle randomly or Hanet Stack who would pull right into deep half guard. Those games can seem very scary to people and super unapproachable. Like, why would I put myself in a situation like that in a competition, no less? But it worked for them. And it doesn't mean that you have to entertain that, but it does mean that you have to entertain something, the advancement of positions that work for you in whatever capacity that looks like. So that means maybe entertaining a new move a week or asking your instructor for some more detailed analysis of what you can do to help accommodate some of the positions you're struggling with. But by no means should everybody try to know everything all the time because that's not that's not a way to improve your jujitsu. That's just a way to get overwhelmed and bogged down in the details when really even minor changes to uh, foundational positions can vastly and dramatically help improve a game. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, what Raphael said about how if you want to be really good at something, you kind of have to, you know, burn the boats and focus 100% on something. And the challenge with trying to, you know, if you're obsessed about trying to learn every single detail, you might wind up with just a passing knowledge of everything without really being good at anything. And I, I agree, Raphael, exactly with what you said about how, you know, starting from the timeless fundamentals and really nailing those is the best investment for most people. Sorry, do you mind if I jump back in real quick? I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but you're you're go for it. Getting into it, and I just want to I want to get back in as well. You know, here's one a couple of things I would say. Number one, a lot of times the fundamentals. You know, I'm making quotation marks once again. I know no one can see me, but that automatically gets these like th- this mindset or this idea or perspective that they're easy to learn, right? It's the fundamentals. Oh, I got it. You know, I know how to shrimp. I know how to escape side control. I know my my elbow escape from mount. I know how to bridge. I know my close guard sweeps, blah, 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 whatever. And then they're like, okay, so I learned it. I got it. Now I want to go to the advanced stuff. You know, the the more intricate, like detailed stuff that has a whole bunch of steps and blah, 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 blah. And they, they think that they really got the fundamentals. Let me tell you, the fundamentals are as intricate and take so many years of refinement and practice and practice and practice and practice and practice that you can imagine any advanced sort of modern technique to take, if not more, if not even longer. And I think that that's a big mistake people make is it's like, oh, let me get this out of the way so I can get to the other stuff. And they don't really really develop a full understanding, a full comprehension, the intricacies, the details, you know, I mean, I see it all the time. Like I've traveled all over the world. I have students visit me from all over the world, you know, high level competitors, high level jujitsu, MMA people, so on and so forth. And, you know, not to, not to sound, I don't know, whatever, but, you know, I'll see people who can do crab rides and barambolos and things like that. And then to be honest, they really have no idea how to escape mount or play any sort of close guard, you know, like the fundamental stuff, you know, because they just jumped over it and went to the other thing. And like, for me, it's like, man, that's another thing that I feel like I I'm here to do, you know, it's like my purpose 
when I teach, when I travel and teach seminars all around the world and stuff like that is to really get people to hone in on these fundamental things that they think they know that, but they really don't, you know, and Hajar, I was just watching the other day and I was traveling. I finally caught up on Hajar's recent podcast on with, with Lex Friedman. And he was saying the same thing. It's like, no one knows how many hours, how much practice and refinement he has done on that mounted cross choke, right? You know, they look and say, oh, that's the basic move I learned as a white belt. Da, 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 da. I know that too. No, you really don't. And even if you think you do, you haven't put the practice in to get it to that level of what he is at. Obviously, he's, you know, the best mounter cross choker ever in, in competition history. And, you know, I feel like I'm kind of up there too with that move. I have many, many mounted submissions and Kimuras. Those two are my basic, most powerful finishing positions. But people don't see how much time I put into making it what it is today. And they could learn that move on a DVD or a seminar or whatever. And they think, oh, I know that too. Take me to the next thing, you know, but you really don't know it yet. Right. So that's one thing, like putting the time and energy into those classic positions and techniques, the same as you would with the new trendy thing, right? Put it in that because I promise there's still more for you to learn. I'm still refining details on the most basic positions and techniques. And then the next thing, it doesn't mean that I, I don't love to learn the new stuff too. I really do. You know, Victor Hugo is one of my best training partners. He's here right now. You know, he has a beautiful mix of the modern and the classic. He gets the classic inspiration from me and Shanji. He can play close guard. He can pressure pass. He can mount 100%. But then he has a beautiful modern style as well. He'll do jumping submissions. He'll invert. He'll attack your legs. You know, he'll do all these new things. And he's innovated a lot of the modern jiu-jitsu that there is today. He's been a part of that innovation. And I love to learn it from him. I love to learn some of these things. It doesn't mean I'm going to go out there and do it myself. But as I learn it, I also learn how I can shut it down. I also learn how I can make sure I don't get destroyed by him in those positions, right? And and how I can just go back to, you know, how do I, okay, maybe I used to pressure this one way and it works forever, but now there's a new innovation, a new game where that pressure can lead me straight into trouble. And so now I have to make a modification, you know? And so maybe I'm, I'm still going to knee cut pass like I've always done, but it's a different style of knee cut pass because now the guard is different. You know, people made a new innovation with the guard. And so I have to kind of keep up the date, so to speak, but I'm never going to, I'm not going to change my game. You know, I might get a detail here or there of something that I can use, but it's not like I'm going to make my game something different than what I've put all the time and energy into. It's just, how do I, how do I adjust according to their new answers? I need a new answer too. You know what I'm saying? So anyways, but yes, that comes from a lot of like awareness of what it is you like to do, what it is that your body's physical attributes kind of already make you somewhat good at, and then honing in on that. And then just keeping up with the times to help you kind of keep adding little pieces, little things here and there, but never really needing to change anything 100%.
I love that point you brought up about how you can never truly, quote unquote, master the fundamentals, especially when you're a beginner, at least from my experience, you know, I I would much rather if I've got to go to a class, I would much rather go and take a fundamentals class, even at black belt, than take a so-called advanced class. Because a lot of the time, you know, when you go to an advanced class, instructors feel pressured to show something exotic and novel and difficult. And what I find you normally wind up seeing is a, a technique that, you know, it's very context dependent. Maybe if the person's got their hand here and their leg here and their foot here, you can do this. But even then, it might not be the highest percentage option. But sometimes you go to a, a fundamentals class and you just let people show you how would you do the triangle choke right and they might show you a detail that will completely change your game that you never thought of before just one little game-changing detail i find especially as i get older and and more experienced in the art i have a lot of those where it's not a brand new technique i see that revolutionizes the way i do jujitsu it's some little tiny detail that i just never thought about and most of those stem from the fundamentals so i agree with you completely it's just such a better investment for most people in terms of where they put their training time. I just wanted to jump in and say one more thing. I think that there's like a difference between the jujitsu we like sport jujitsu and the the dedication that we place into training for sport jujitsu versus training jujitsu for longevity, as Rafael has been saying, for timeless jujitsu. If we're training to be competitive at the highest levels, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to set aside a lot of things. We're gonna have to make sure that we understand our opponent's games and if our opponents have super complicated difficult to understand games we're going to have to become at least at least somewhat well versed in understanding the defenses for the situations they'll put us into but again a lot of these situations they're super rare they don't necessarily exist in everyday training as Raphael said like Somebody who might be really, really adept at baron or crab riding may have a trash mountain escape game. And that's not going to, that kind of like success in that respect is not going to last for very long. You're going to have to quickly learn how to adapt to a more generalized game or at least learn how to operate within more generalized positions in order to be able to continue training. And I don't think that competitive training necessarily can last for a very long time like when we turn 50 and 60 we can still we can still try to head toe to toe with some of the best competitive guys but for our own sake and for our own bodies we're probably going to have to make some major adjustments and there's nothing wrong with that at all it just means that like the jujitsu that we we look to use or look to utilize is just going to have to change and morph in a way that is more comfortable and accommodating towards the situation that we're currently operating in. Well, Dom, Raphael, I can't thank both of you enough for coming by and having this conversation. It's just super cool to kind of sit in between you and hear two legends from different generations share their stories and talk about how they've they've inspired each other, talking about the the growth of the sport and the direction of the sport as well. I really enjoyed this one. Let's do some plugs. Dom, if people want to check out your work, if they want to follow you, or perhaps most importantly, if they want a 10-time overall world champion to paint a badass mural for their gym, where would they go to do that? <laughs> yes, please. If you if you guys want your walls painted or to beautify your gyms or living spaces or businesses, you can feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. My Instagram name is Dom da Bomb Your Mom. If you hate that and would just rather <laughs> look up my name, that works as well. I actually, funny story, uh, Gianni Grippo has 
spent maybe like five years of his life trying to coach me into letting go of that Instagram name in favor of something more professional like Dominica VJJ. I'm very happy I didn't listen to him because it's memorable and awesome. Uh, you can catch me there. Send me a DM. I will be sure to respond to you. Hopefully we can work on some cool art projects together in the future. Same goes for seminars. I'll be available after the summertime to travel mostly anywhere. So if you're a gym that's been interested in partnering with me, please shoot me a DM. I'd be happy to visit. Amazing. And Raphael, I mean, we talked about this quite a bit, but hey, if someone wanted to get, I don't know, an entire framework for how to be a, an amazing timeless grappler and they wanted to do so at a shockingly reasonable price, how would they go about doing that? <laughs> uh, well, they could go to timelessjujitsu.com. You know, we, we've done uh, some special work together. We have our audio courses together, which is a part of that. So they can learn through uh, our work together on mental models. But I also have just like, you know, an easy like newsletter that you can join at timelessjitsu.com and my Facebook group where we share stuff there too. There's a timeless Instagram and then um, my own Instagram, Lovato JRBJJ, which is very simple. It's just a harder name to spell. So just think of Demi Lovato, right? My cousin. <laughs> you saw that? <laughs> I was. <laughs> I, I did see that. I, I was going to comment because, you know, I, I thought for a second, is this guy being serious? Is he actually related to Demi Lovato? <laughs> I'm the one that got her started, man. I was been telling her for years. And she <laughs> no, she's not. She's not my cousin, everybody. She's not. But I'm still going to take some credit for that influence there. With the last name Lovato, you got to do a little jujitsu at least. Right. Yeah. Well, she she is a grappler. She's up to purple belt now. Right. Yeah. So that's a big deal. Yeah. But yeah, I got plenty of stuff out there. I've been teaching online and doing seminars for years. I also have my association. I have like 30 schools across uh, the US and Canada, just doing what I do. Like I said, I'm never stopping and can never think of doing anything else. That's it, man. I'm Yeah. I'm always here, easy to find. And I think it's awesome what you're doing, Steve. And I think it's super cool to have this conversation today with Dominica and thinking back to that, that one year, I think she was like, 16 maybe 15 at a pan ams <laughs> and she didn't say anything to me her dad was just like hey please take a picture with my daughter please take a picture with my daughter and so yeah i'm sure no problem like just happy to take a picture and i saw she had a gold medal i'm like oh wow good job congrats like i said she said nothing and then like three four years later boom she's black belt double gold world champion and i was like wow <laughs> so now that was amazing because I, in my head, I was like, oh my God, it's Raphael Amato Jr. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I can't speak. I'm 15 years old. <laughs> and then the next time I saw you, you said to me the words, well, it's time for me to take a picture with you now, which was yes. just one of the best things ever. <laughs> yeah. So cool. And that's like, that's, that's another thing that's beautiful about jujitsu. Like, you know, you keep here doing the same thing and time goes by time goes by and next thing you know like you spent so many years with these amazing people and you've seen their journey and you know it's it's really really cool really really special and yeah it, the fact that it's getting as big as what it is today it's just like you, you can impact so many and it's it's awesome so thanks for helping us do that steve yeah steve one more thanks for you steve because i'm really grateful that you're able to liaise conversations like this and bring them 
from the ether into the jujitsu sphere. I know all of your listeners really appreciate you too. So thanks again. I love it. I don't have to do any work. I just get two people on and I can just kind of peace out into the background. This is the best. <laughs> well, don't work too hard then, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, I can't thank both of you enough for coming by and having this super cool conversation. And of course, to everyone out there listening, man, I hope you got as much out of this as I did. Thanks as well to you. And so Dom, Lovato, have a great day. Thanks so much to both of you. We'll talk to everyone next time. Take care. Take care.